Hey everybody, this is Keach Rainwater with the Designated Drummer Podcast. I hope everybody's having a great January. I know I sure am because we are off the road right now, spending some time with our families and at home, kind of recharging our batteries a little bit. And uh, last week I had on here, I had Steve Getzman with um, uh, Exile. And man, what a great guy and what a great conversation we had about longevity and about um, just our whole career paths and things like that, being with the same band for uh, decades and decades. And that's something that he and I certainly share. If you get a chance, uh, you should go back and listen to it. Um, But for right now, I thought I would talk a little bit about uh, the types of drums that you would play, like types of drums and different brands and different types of situations where you would need a different kind of drum kit. And uh, I had a, a person reach out to me recently and ask the question, uh, well, what kind of drums do you play, they say, they're asking, and why do you play that that set of why, why did you choose that brand of drums, and why... Um, like, like what would uh, situations be where you would have a different kind of kit? And that's a great question because there's, to me, in my mind, there's, I'm going to cover three different sort of scenarios of, of why the drum kit would be slightly different. And in some cases, um, vastly different. Um, but first of all, um, you know, I just thought I would go over the meaning of different kinds of uses, you know, like, um, one use would obviously be for practice, you know, you want a practice kit at home and your practice kit, you know, it can be a beginner kit if you're just starting out or something like that. Um, and you're not really playing professional gigs yet. You're just trying to learn. You, you really don't need a $3,000 drum kit, you know, just a, just something off a of Craigslist or a Facebook marketplace, $150 drum kit. It doesn't, it, you're just going to, beat on them and you're going to learn and you're just going to kind of figure out your craft a little bit and get the groove down and that's in your garage or in your practice room or in a shed or something like that it doesn't nobody's going to see it um you're just going to be out there by yourself uh, hacking away at it it's like a, it's like a gym you don't you know you don't dress up well i guess some people do but you don't dress up and uh wear your your best clothes to the gym because that's a sacred place for you to kind of work out work things out build strength and muscle memory and that kind of thing. And that's exactly what a practice kit should be. A practice kit should be just a basic uh, $150, $200, whatever drum kit. Or if somebody in your family has some drums or drum kit that they don't play anymore, that's maybe an off-brand or something like that. And when I say off-brand, I can't even, I don't even think of, I can't even think of a name except for the first kit that I had was what's Maxitone. They were called Maxitone drums. And for the life of me, my entire career, I had never seen another Maxitone kit out on the road or in a store or anything. It was Maxitone was, I don't know who made them, but I bought them when I was uh, 14 and that's what I learned on. And it wasn't even a complete kit. It was didn't have cymbals and it didn't have uh, legs for the floor tom and it was no kick pedal and that kind of thing. I had to kind of piece it all together myself. But that made me really appreciate when I did actually get the good stuff, you know, the good kick drum pedals and the good uh, cymbal stands and all that stuff. Um, I really, really had a great appreciation for good equipment because I started out on pretty basic shoddy equipment. Um, And then, of course, another situation would be live gigs where you are the drummer for a band or a group or whatever the show you're doing. could be a show band. It could be... 
an audition. It could be sort of like a talent show or something. But this is going to be on stage where people are looking at your kit. They're watching you play. And this kit should be this should be the good stuff. I mean, if you can borrow money, take out a loan, whatever you're going to do, because really, you know, I think of it as like, if you're going to race cars, uh, on a professional level, even on a, not even on a professional level, on a semi-professional level, you don't want to go out on the racetrack with your, your uncle's, you know, Chevy Cavalier, uh, souped up uh, thing all kind of beat up and they're going to laugh at you. They're, they're going to look at you like you're kind of a fool. You want to show up there with a nice shiny race car that with the engine that you could eat off of. I mean, you know, and just totally runs like, uh, like a lion, you know, I mean the thing you want people to be impressed with what they see. You don't want to get out on stage with a cruddy looking kit. People are going to judge. They do judge. They look up there and they see your kit and they even, and I, I always tell people this, even before the band ever comes out, when you're just backstage and everything's set up and the lights are kind of, the lighting people, if it's at a theater or a whatever, the lights are going to be kind of like turned off or subdued or kind of like silhouetted or whatever you want to call it. Um, but the one thing that you're going to be able to see from the audience, the guitars are going to be probably put away. The singers aren't going to be there. The keyboard, maybe you'll be able to see the keyboard there because that has to sit there. But in most cases, the keyboard is just kind of a box with a name on the front. You can't really tell what it is. But a drum kit, oh my God. And you look up there and you see this this sculpture, this, this, this sort of building of these things up there. The cymbals, they're shiny and the, the drums are set up and they just have a sort of a stealth to them. They have a look. It looks like a monument. It looks like a race car, you know, ready to race. And you know what I mean? It's either going to look beat up like a beat up Chevy or it's going to look like a Ferrari, you know. And I suggest that if you're going to play professionally, take out a loan, whatever you got to do, and get the good stuff. And so I'm going to run through some, maybe some brands that that I have been over my career. Now, I'm not, I'm not dogging one brand out over another. I'm simply saying that these are the brands that I see out on the road more often, that I see in the studio more often, and that I hear other like like longtime drummers, you know, like um, you know, like uh, professional longtime legacy drummers that have been playing for decades and decades. Um, what they tend to to buy and or or get an endorsement for, or the ones that they'll accept. And you know, I'll tell you that uh, for in the studio, let's say, well, so that was going to be another thing I was going to tell you is that another situation besides on stage would be in the studio. And we're going to get to that. Um, but right now I'm just going to go through some brands of drums that, um, I have been told by an engineer. I've, I had a conversation one time with an engineer talking about different brands of drums and things like that, because I was kind of new to the, the whole session scene. When I moved to Nashville, I had only done a very handful a very few handful of sessions in my whole career where you go in the studio and you have the headphones on and you're playing a song in the studio. Most of my playing had been live on stage. Even when I was with Canyon for, for five years with Canyon, I did just a couple of little studio sessions. And in that band on those albums that we made, I didn't play on those albums. It was, um, it was Owen Hale, Roger Hawkins, it was Owen Hale and Roger Hawkins were the two drummers that played in Muscle Shoals in the studio. They were the session guys that, and you know, all the band, most of the bands 
they were around then and even around now. Um, it's kind of like the um, wrecking crew type thing, you know. Um, you're not supposed to talk about it, but a lot of times the um, the session guys come in and play the music, and you, you just think that that's like Karen Carpenter playing on all that Carpenter's music. No, it's Hal Blaine playing on that stuff, but you, you're not supposed to talk about that. You Like, we didn't know about that till kind of recently. Um, but anyway, um, I had not played very much in the studio, and so I was asking an engineer one day, I said, well, what kind of drums should I go for if I want to get a good you know obviously when I play live that's a different a live kit is kind of a different thing than a studio kit I already knew that I did know that I did know that session drums session drummers had like the best of the best and that there was such a thing as a Yamaha recording series drum kit and that kind of impressed me hearing that and I read up on it a little bit and and I found out that you know there's things that they do building those Yamaha drums that keep them from rattling and keep them from making noise. There's rubber grommets in places where there might be some uh, vibration and things like that. And I think that all comes back to Hal Blaine back in the 60s. He was supposed to do a famous session with, um, uh, I can't remember who it was, um, but he was supposed to do this famous session and he didn't want to mess it up. And he had an engineer, a guy, take his whole entire drum kit apart and he said, put rubber washers on everything where there's metal touching metal i don't want any metal touching metal that could possibly squeak or vibrate or anything that like if we do a take and um i think it was frank sinatra um and if frank sinatra says uh, you know hey we got to do it again frank sorry the hal blaine's drums squeaked or something like that he wanted to just make sure that he wasn't the reason why they had to do another take because they had heard that um that he did not like to do second takes that uh, he, he was a one-take kind of guy, Frank Sinatra. It's like, let's do it and get out of here and go. So anyway, to make a short story long, um, I think that Yamaha probably picked up on that at some point in the maybe 70s, like mid to late 70s into the early 80s, and they started making recording series, recording custom uh, Yamaha drums for just for, really pretty much for the studio. Um, and... I do have a set of Yamaha recording series drums that I use in, you know, pretty much exclusively in the studio. That's what I play in the studio is Yamaha recording series. And um, I'll talk a little bit about this, um, about my live kit, about how I've hybrid, my hybrid live kit that I have pieced together of different brands of drums. And we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But but right now, the studio, you, you want to have like the... Um, a, a brand of drums that is accepted by the engineer. So the conversation I had with this engineer was something like, uh, you know, what kinds of drums, what brands of drums are accepted, are, you know, uh, looked favor, very favorably upon in the studio. Now, not to say that if a session drummer shows up with an older kit, like a something, and he sets them up, I'm sure that the engineer will probably just deal with it and say, that, oh yeah, well, let's, we can probably get those to sound good. But that's not the point. You don't want them to have to have to try to make the drum kit sound good. The drum kit should sound good, incredible on its own. And they just be able to put the microphone up there and then voila, you've got great sounding drums for this session. And these are the main uh, these are the main drums that, and I'll start with the top three and then kind of move down a little bit, that, that I have seen and heard of and on the road and just the top notch of brands of drums that are 
let's say acceptable, I'm using quotation marks, acceptable in the professional drum world. I would say the number one is probably Yamaha. You probably see more Yamaha kits and rental houses and uh, in the studio and even live and all that because they just make great sounding drums and they're very durable and they, they're amazing. And they make a, a few different um, road roadworthy custom ones and then their studio ones and all that. Um, the next one would be Gretsch. If uh, you know, if a drummer showed up at a at a session at a Nashville session with a Gretsch kit, yeah, that'd be great. Those are the drums that Phil Collins played. Um, it's you know they're they're great great sounding drums. They're probably older than Yamaha. I think Gretsch has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years um, history, almost like Zildjian. Zildjian's been I think they're celebrating their oh my gosh I want to say four hundredth year four hundred years making cymbals four hundred years. Um, but anyway, Gretsch has probably been around for several hundred, I would say, making drums, and they make a great studio kit and a great live kit. The next uh, up the ladder or down the ladder is DW. Um, if you showed up with a brand new DW kit tuned really good with brand new heads on there and nice uh, Zildjian cymbals, no engineer in the world would ever say, oh, oh God, those DWs again. No, they're going to be great. They're, they, again, they're very popular with rental houses because they always deliver. They look great. They sound great. The shells are wonderful. Um, so DW. Um, and um, I use on my live kit that I play and the studio pretty much, but mostly at the live kit, I use all DW stands, like hardware. I don't have a DW kit because I'll tell you why in a little bit about my diff- two different kinds of drums that I've hybrided together. Um, but I definitely was most impressed with DW hardware. It's the most consistent, most handy, um, uh, very uh, very usable, um, very roadworthy, um, and problem-free um, performing hardware is DW hardware. And I'm talking like the hi-hat to the kick pedal to the cymbal stands to just about everything, everything hardware. The DW has definitely is the top notch on that one. Uh, so the next one is Mapex, and I used to have an endorsement with Mapex. I used to endorse them years and years ago, and they um, they have great, great sounding uh, drums. Um, and I think Mick Fleetwood at one point had a Mapex kit. They were telling me at Mapex that um, that I believe I believe that's right. I believe that um, that he had a um, I don't remember what it was an Orion series, but I don't remember what um, exact set he had. But I believe he had a Mapex. Uh, a set of Mapex drums at one point. A lot of, um, I, th- I think the guy uh, with Saliva, the band Saliva, we did a photo shoot one time. Uh, that's a rock group. Saliva's a rock group. And the drummer and I, I uh, we were both endorsed with, uh, we were both endorsing Mapex at the time. And they wanted to do a poster or something with like country versus rock or country and rock together, whatever, you know, kind of thing. Mapex artist kind of poster thing. So we did a photo shoot up there one day and I cannot remember his name but I would love to have him on my podcast sometime the drummer for saliva so look out for that for sure I'm going to reach out to him and see if I can get him on here um great great drummer great band and I think the next down the down the thing uh is sonar sonar drums have been around they were the big rock drums in this in the 80s the 70s and 80s sonar drums and I think the reason why sonar were so great for rock music was the depth of their toms if i remember right now i'm just remember i'm trying to picture one of the drum kits from 
um, the eighties or the, the late seventies and eighties. And I remember the toms being like, like instead of like on the Yamaha and the, and a different, different, uh, brands of drums, like Pearl and stuff like that, they would have the toms would be, they would be deep enough, you know, but it seems to me like the sonar drums were always just that much deeper, like the longer, the shells were that much deeper than the normal drum kit. So when you had the toms going across the front, like, so like some big band like Metallica or something like that, um, you'd see all those toms across the front. There'd be about like six of them across the front and they would all be just super deep. And I think the sound of that throaty deep, even on the high toms to have that deep shell sound was so amazing back then especially for the kind of music that was coming out of the early 80s, the late 70s and early 80s, like Queen and and Boston and, you know, these big bands like um, Styx and things like that that had a lot of tom fills and Rush and stuff like that. Um, those were, sonar drums were kind of the big deal because they sat, they had that depth to them. And I remember reading an article one time about the, the, the album Back in Black by ACDC and somebody, an engineer or somebody, they were talking about how they mic'd everything and how they got that good snare sound on Back in Black and all that. And then I think one of the things was they said, well, it was just the drum he used, the part of the secret. There was really no secret to that. Of course, Mutt Lang, I'm sure they spent a lot of time doing mixing and stuff like that and how to, how to place the mic and all that. They put a lot into that. But really, the drums that that guy played was sonar and and just that deep, fat snare, how can that not sound good? You know, that big, deep, fat snare with just a little edge to it, you know. And then when that, when when Phil Rudd would play that, hit that snare no matter how, even if he was hitting it soft, um, which he, it didn't always appear to me as a hard hitter. You know, when you watch him on videos and you see him play Phil Rudd, the original drummer for ACDC, he, he wasn't, you know, hitting him like Tommy Lee or anything. He was just uh, hitting him good and solid, but you hit that sonar snare drum and it's going to, it's going to sing. I mean, it's going to have some tone to it. So that's part of the secret of that. And I always remember sonar as being, wow, that's, you know, if you, and they were always more expensive. Everything I priced a sonar. I wanted a sonar kit at one time. I was really Jonesing for one. And I went down to the music store and I'm like, I think I had a dream about it or something. I woke up one morning. And I was like, I've got to get a Gretsch kit. I don't care if I have to go into Hawk. If I have to take out a loan, I want a, I want a sonar kit. So I went down there and they were like $5,000. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, well, I guess I'll stay with my Rogers. Because back in those days, I played my Rogers kit. Um, but, you know, I guess maybe in the 60s and 70s, you might have seen a Rogers kit in the studio or live on stage. They were a little more popular. But um, nowadays, you wouldn't see that. They've kind of been discontinued. But I heard. Uh, up at Drum Paradise, they were saying that somebody has bought out Rogers, and I think they're going to start making Rogers drums again. But anyway, so I'm going to come down to the next lower level of, and, and now I'm not saying that these drums, when I say lower level, I'm not saying that these drums are less or they're uh, less, they're worse sounding or anything like that. I'm just strictly going by what I've seen on the road and what I've seen other drummers play. And these are just kind of like coming down the ladder on those. Yamahas, you see the most. Gretsch, you see the next. DW, you see the next. Um, it's kind of a toss-up between DW and Yamaha, really. I should have said Yamaha, DW, Gretsch, Mapex, Sonar. And then you have drums, uh, companies like Pearl. Pearls are great. Pearl drums are super great to have it on the road. I've seen some and heard some great Pearl kits. I've heard some great Tama drums. Tama drums used to be the 
And if you were in a rock band, like Stuart Copeland with, with the police, his, he was a Tama guy. And he said he liked Tama drums because when he hit the toms, the shells, they just rang. They sang out to him. They, they resonated like no other drum ever did. And he was so impressed by that, he stayed with Tama. Uh, Slingerland, uh, out of England, um, they're a little bit harder to get a hold of here because they are out of England. Um, but uh, you usually see British bands and things like that with playing Slingerland. And I think if I remember right, the drummer with Chicago back in the 70s and early 80s, he used to, I think he played Slingerland drums, if I remember right. Um, and there's, you know, there's other brands like that, um, that, that a bunch of brands that are out there, but I was just kind of going by the, the most popular brands that I have seen. So if you're going for a professional kit, you're thinking about going pro, you think you're ready to take the next step up into playing on stage with a band and showcasing your talent and your the look of your drum kit you want to impress them and i will say this um if you are starting out and you've got your beater kit in your practice room and everything do not take that drum kit to an audition if you're ready to audition for a a band or something that that's the time to go out and spend some money or borrow some money or whatever and get a decent drum kit. Um, and I don't mean go rent one because the people that you're auditioning for, they're, they're going to want to know, they want to know what race car you're driving. You know what I mean? You don't, you, you don't show up at the racetrack with a Ferrari. And then when it comes time for the race day, uh, oh yeah, I've got this Chevy Nova here. And, uh, so you, they want to know what kind of drums you are playing that you are going to be representing, what drum kit is going to be representing you when you play with this band? That's what they want to know. So that's the best time to invest, borrow money, whatever you got to do. If you're going to go audition for bands, and you're taking that step, then you need to have a really, really good set. I can't stress that enough. You need to have a really good set of drums tuned really well with brand new heads on there because, you know, your chances of getting the gig are are, since you're starting, let's say you're starting out, are probably not super great. I mean, you, you could be a great drummer. They're looking at experience. They want drummers that have some experience that they can count on. And you are starting out, and you're you're telling them, look, I, I can do this. I know how to play. I can, I'll can i do a great job for you guys. I'm a good, honest guy. You know, I'm a good hang. Um, just give me a chance. But they're not going to want to give you a chance if you have a shoddy little $150 walmart kit or something you know um they're gonna look at your drums like okay yeah what 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 are what are our what's our drum kit gonna look like what's our drum kit gonna look like because it's gonna represent the band in a way because when you're not on stage and everybody's looking up on stage they're looking at that drum kit um so what's that gonna be is it gonna be a little ringo kit you know with dust all over it or is it gonna be you know like Stuart copeland's kit all shiny and nice and there's just something about there's something about the sheen of everything from the rims to the hardware to the shine on the shells the finish everything about that drum kit will either say eh, walmart special or like wow this this guy is this guy's going to be good this is going to be impressive and then of course you want to have the chops to back it up too not the chops but I w- you want to have the groove and the talent 
and the feel to back that up. You know, when you get out there and start playing, you want to impress people, not with your flash and your licks and things like that. So that's not what it's about. But the the solid that you're playing solid and you know what you're doing and you have a confidence about you, not only in the way that you play, but in your kit that you're playing. So it's very important to if you're going to audition and you're going to put stick your neck out there, make sure you stick your neck out there with a great kit. So I will say that. I will say more about that if I need to, but um, that's basically how I feel about that, and that is, that's what needs to happen. Um, so yeah, clean hardware, clean cymbals, um, keep them shiny and keep them good. Um, I will say that I I went on an audition one time, and this this was not a great experience. I was going through a period where I was kind of in between bands, and I was I was kind of worn out from the band I was in before because we'd come off this. 30 day hellish tour where we didn't get paid. And I was just, I was really kind of bummed, but I had this audition coming up and I got the tape from them and I tried to learn the songs and it was kind of through a bass player, friend of mine that said, Hey, yeah, we're looking for a drummer. And I learned the songs kind of, and I just wasn't, my head wasn't in the game for this gig. I guess I didn't really, I hate to say it, but I didn't really care if I got it or not. I I wasn't sure if it was the type of music I wanted to do. Um, it was like pop music kind of thing, pop show band. And they were kind of playing some clubs and things like that. And I didn't take it very seriously. And I went in there and they had some some songs that had like a timbali in there, you know, like sort of a uh, like a Jamaican sounding high. And they kind of had some things like that. And so I needed a timbali. So I just took a snare drum that I had and took the bottom head off of it. And I tried to mount it on a cymbal stand somehow with the, the hole that's in the snare drum, the little breather hole. I tried to somehow mount it on there and I just never quite got it. I was lazy and I didn't work that out yet. I hadn't had that. And I thought, Oh, it'll be fine. I'll just heighten it real good when I get there. And I'm only, I won't play it very much. And I got there and I remember I was setting up my kit and, and the, they were all kind of looking at me and watching me set up and looking at my drums, kind of turning their heads sideways, like, hmm, Roger's drums, you know? And I, I, it was weird to me because I was young then and I didn't realize I was only about uh, 22, maybe 23. And I didn't really realize that in an audition, they're going to be judging your equipment just as much as they are you, you know, you as a person and a drummer and a player and a professional and all that. And they're going to, they want to know what kit. So I didn't think that, in my mind that they really cared about the kit that much, you know, it's just an audition. And I set that timbali thing up and it was kind of wibbly wombly. Like it just quite didn't, didn't get tight enough. And it kind of turned to the side a little bit when I was playing. And I remember them looking at that thinking kind of with this look like, what is that thing? Like, what's, is that going to be at the gig? I mean, is that part of his kit? You know, I could see, I could see the question marks going off in their head and the, their feeling of confidence in me sort of starting to fade away a little bit as they saw that drum sort of and like, what's that thing, you know, kind of thing. And I, I played okay, and I was a little nervous, but I did not get that gig, and for good reason, too, because I was not prepared. I didn't have – my head wasn't in the game. I was just – I was kind of tired from that uh, road gig that I had just come off of, and I just – I kind of blew it, you know, and it made me realize that – that was the time that I realized that, oh, okay, yeah, right. Well, of course, they care about your kit because it's, you're going to be playing on stage with them. They don't want a crappy timbali that's like moving around and not tight and it's loose and flopping around. They want a drummer that's going to play solid, count the songs off loud, play solid, end perfect, and be tight with the band 
show up on time early, whatever, you know, I had all that to learn yet. And I had to learn the hard way, but that was the one audition that I blew. And I, it taught me so much about auditions. And if there's anything I can say about auditions for sure is that have a great kit because they're going to look at that and they're going to judge. Um, so another thing I want to talk about is being comfortable when you're choosing a brand of drums or this isn't so much have to do with the brand, but I'm going to talk about just the, you know, the way you set them up, the, the, your personal setup and how comfortable you are. Now I've seen drummers before from one spectrum or the other, as far as height goes, like the drummer that plays with Brian Adams, um, Mickey Curry, I believe that's his name. Um, he's actually one of my favorite drummers, but, um, uh, his name escaped me for like a second, but anyway, Mickey Curry, he sits really, really, really low. Well, almost sitting on the ground, almost. I mean, when you see him play, his knees are up above his waist. I mean, so he's sitting really low and, and just kind of, and to me, I guess, well, maybe he's comfortable like that. I could never be that. I'm so tall. My legs are so long. I could never be comfortable sitting that low and reaching up and, trying to hit the drums and I feel like I'm sitting on the floor or something and would just be so uncomfortable. I could maybe play one song that way and I would be just like my, my joints and muscles would be so tired. So I'm a high sitter and you see uh, drummers like, um, well, let's say, uh, Nigel Olson that play plays or played with, uh, Elton John for years and years. He's a big, tall, he sets up really, really, really tall. And I think that Buddy Rich kind of does the same. He did the same thing. He sat up on a really high, and I don't think he even had a stool. He had like a bucket that he sat on, like a case. It was like a round case, and I guess he put his drumsticks and charts and things like that in there. So it was kind of a case. And uh, he didn't need to raise and lower the height because he knew what height he wanted to sit at. He was he That was already worked out. He already knew that. So he had a case made that's at that height and that kind of thing. So very super stable way. But it's I remember he sort of sat up high. And... A visual for visual reasons too, because you know Buddy Rich, he's the leader of the band. Um, he wants to be able people to be able to see him, and um, I would say for a drummer that sits really super low like that, you're sitting kind of almost almost below the drums. Your head is barely sticking up out of the drums. And like in the '70s, when you have the '70s and '80s, these big heavy metal rock bands, they would have like you know ten toms across the front and you never saw the drummer. You know, you always saw maybe his head sticking up out of the back of there because those toms would just be like a wall. And then through the ninety through the eighties and then into the nineties, I think the popular thing was then to do the sort of Ringo kit. Like I call it the Ringo kit. It's where the drummer is more visible. Because when you look at the Beatles play, you see Ringo Ringo Starr up there. He's sitting up there with this very few drums. I mean, it's just like the kick, the snare, which you don't see hardly the snare, but the tom is kind of in front of him a little bit, but he's sitting up so high in that floor tom that you're seeing almost his whole body when he plays drums. And and I don't think that's totally by accident. I think it was more like we want to see everybody in the band. There's only four guys. You know, we want to be able to see all four. And, and so Ringo... I think he just, maybe that was, he was comfortable like that, but I think that that was his kit and that became popular. And so I think in the nineties, there was a resurgence of, you started seeing a lot less of the wall of Tom's and more of like the Ringo kit. And, um, I did that for a long time. I changed. Um, so when I was in Canyon, I did the two Tom's across the front and then the floor Tom. And I set up high though. I set up real high and I kept the symbols 
uh, medium high, you know, I kept them out to the side where you could still see me. So I was pretty visual, but, um, you know, you see these drummers, uh, through the nineties and, and even now that do that Ringo kit. And, and I think that's the most popular setup right now. And that's fine. That's cool. And I did that for a long time. I think in probably 2008 or 2009 or something like that, I switched to the, the Ringo type kit and it was, it was okay. I mean, I, I, I got the whole visual thing and it kind of looked cool. And I had like the two floor toms down low and the one up high, you know, kind of thing. But to me for years and years, the gap between the first Tom and the second Tom was too much for me. And I was doing some rolls across the Toms and I just, you know, I just thought I kind of miss at one point about a year and a half ago, I had decided I was going to redo the kit. I was just going to kind of rethink everything. Um, and the idea was was to try and lower the footprint a little bit. I was using some different types of cymbal stands. I was still using DW, but I was using these kind of C stands that they use in the film industry as the bases. And because my thinking was, if a big wind came by, I want to be able to sandbag those the bases of the cymbal stands. And so I was using like the C stand bases. They're called turtle bases. And I did that for a long time, and that, that was fine, but it just got to where there was so much metal up there. I wanted to reduce everything down a little bit. So I went back to the two toms up front that just mount onto the kick drum. So you have a stand coming out of the kick drum, two toms mount on that, and then the floor tom. That's it. And that alim- that allevi- alleviates basically two extra stands that I was using to, to mount the first tom and the second tom on, separate stands. And then uh, I had a different symbol stand on the left and a different symbol stand on the right and the ride symbol and all that. So anyway, I I sort of reduced everything down. Less symbols. I got all DW symbols, uh, stands, DW symbol stands and hardware, um, which I've been using for a long time. But I got the full bases and the full, like, just the normal DW thick, fat hardware. And it... I went back to the two toms across the front, and it's been great. I have loved the renaissance of the two toms up front and the one floor tom. And also, I lost another stand. I, I was able to alleviate another stand that I used to mount the floor tom on. My floor tom used to be rack mounted, um, which was a little bit wobbly and heavy. So I put it back on legs again. I, there's nothing wrong with the floor tom. I mean, it doesn't need to ring forever. So with those um, those feet, touching the floor the whole idea was to suspend the drum up so that it wasn't touching the floor which you lose some low end if you hit the drum and a lot of the vibration is going into the drum riser the floor then you lose some of the low end well i think the sound guy you know kyle he can make that up in eq you know or he can just turn the drum up or something you know so um i went back to the legs on the floor tom and that reduced a whole nother cymbal stand or stand that i didn't need uh hardware so now i reduced down my footprint on the drum riser, the the weight of amount of weight that we were hauling in the trailer, the amount of cases that I needed to put the hardware in, all that stuff. It just made it a lot simpler. And uh, so, but the kit that I use now, I will. I told you I was going to talk about that. The kit that I use now is a Yamaha and Mapex combined. It's I call it my Yamapex kit. So. Basically, I went through and I had a basically I had a Mapex drum kit that I really liked from years ago when I endorsed them, and it's a Orion series um, uh, Mapex drums, and the finish on it had faded or something, and 
on one one or two of the toms, and so they didn't look good anymore. So I they had replaced it with a new kit, and I always kept that. I kept that kit because I loved the sound of it. The, those toms just sounded so good to me, and the kick drum was just like amazing sounding. And uh, so I knew that I was going to have to have them custom painted, and I've been thinking about custom paint jobs and things like that. So I kind of came up with this sort of steampunk idea. I love steampunk stuff, gears and steam. Uh, and like pipes and welds and rivets and all that stuff, you know, all that steampunk stuff, that early 1900s technology, um, industrial revolution stuff, where you're mixing electric a little bit with steam with a little bit of mechanical. Um, and so I found a guy in, in Hendersonville here that does paints cars, and his name's Kevin. He's a good friend of mine. He's actually a drummer, too. Um and uh, I sent Kevin a bunch of reference photos of what I liked. And so he, and I thought, well, this is an opportunity to put in a couple of my other favorite drums too, for Yamaha recording series. So a friend of mine had said, hey, I have a floor tom. If you want to buy it, it's red. It's The color was red. Uh, a Yamaha recording series floor tom that I'm selling for like a hundred bucks or something. So I thought, yeah, yeah, sold. And I thought, well, I'll add that to my Yamapex kit because I love the sound of a Yamaha recording floor tom. It's got those long, high-tension lugs, and it's just the tone is great. Um, so I bought it from him, and then I also looked on the Internet. Now, one of the things about this Mapex kit that I that I didn't like, uh, the one that sounded really good that I liked that the finish had faded a little bit on, is that it had a 12-inch tom. The first tom was a 12-inch tom. I don't mind a 12-inch tom, but I'd rather have a 13-inch tom. It's the perfect size of first tom to not be like a little wimpy sounding and it sounds beefy but not like 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 not like a floor tom um 13 is just the magic number so i found a yamaha recording series recording custom 13 inch tom nice and deep you know the depth is a little bit more than the mapex was and i bought it and so i gave all these drums the the Yamaha and the Mapex drums to this uh, guy, Kevin. And he said, well, let me get started on it. It's probably going to take a couple months. So I brought out another kit out on the road that I had, um, another Mapex kit, and I played that for a little while um, while he painted these drums. And so now I have this amazing, and it's one of those things that, you know, my um, uh, Chase, my drum tech, he tells me every single time that we pull these drums out of the cases, everywhere we go, people gawk at it. People look at this finish and they're like, oh my God, that, those are the coolest drums I've ever seen. And people will stand around and stare at them, you know, at like festivals and things like that. Other drummers, other musicians, they'll go, whoa, those are cool. And, uh, and, and, but not, they don't just look cool. They sound great too, because it's my Frankenstein kit that I've put together from all these different kits that I've had, um, or kits, uh, drums that I've ordered that I've always wanted on a kit, that kind of thing. So I just sort of piecemealed my favorite kit together and had it custom painted and it's uh super amazing and i love it um one of the things i do too that on my kit for this situation uh that when we play live is i have a side snare a little small and what i did is i took a mapex 12 inch tom the one that was supposed to be on the kit originally a little 12 inch mapex tom and i made it into a snare i cut i sanded down the snare beds on the bottom so for the snare that stretches across the bottom to give it the snare sound, those um, where they where they come in contact with the bottom of the drum, they have to be sort of sanded down just a little bit. They're called snare beds. I did that. I ordered the little 12-inch snare. Those are kind of rare. You don't just see those every day. You have to order it. So I ordered a 12-inch snare strainer, and then I put some hardware from another snare drum I had 
on there to, to be able to pull the snare and take it off and all that. So now it's a tom and a snare anytime I need it to be. So it's really nice for songs that start out kind of small, kind of low. I can start out with the, the beat on the side snare, which is a tighter and crispier sounding, you know, kind of sounds like a piccolo almost. And then when I get into the chorus or the meat of the song, then I can hit my regular snare and then it's beefier and fatter sounding. That's the idea anyway. And so that has been a really cool way to do a lot of songs. We do a lot of songs with that. So I use that thing a lot. Um, so... Um, what else did I want? Oh, one of the other things I wanted to talk about is another situation that you would want a different kit, and that is an acoustic set. So way back in the day when we got our record deal and we were expected to go play for, well, well the first acoustic show we ever did was for Joe Galanti of RCA. We had to fly to New York City, put on our our you know, not cowboy. Well, I some of the guys dressed up like cowboys, like Michael Britt had, Michael Britt and Dean, all the other guys had these cowboy hats on. I didn't, I wasn't a hat guy. So I was like the blonde Indian. So, <laughs> so we dressed all up in our gear across the street. And I remember getting sort of a bunch of yeehaws and things like that from people on the street. Cause we were like, the hotel was across the street from RCA. So we had to cross the street in our, uh, show clothes, let's say, you know, cowboy hats and things like that. So we needed to show Joe Galani what we looked like, you know, we're, we're a country band in New York city. Um, so anyway, we went in there and we had to do this impromptu kind of, uh, acoustic in his office, like play songs live, because I think the philosophy was if, you know, you can, you can make demo tapes and you can go in the studio and you can make somebody sound good, but what do they sound like harmonies and that kind of thing? Like, what do the Eagles sound like if you, they're just sitting on a couch with guitars and things like that, and maybe some percussion and what do they sound like? The vo- the voice and the guitars and things like that. That that's what Joe Galani wanted to know was what we sounded like raw, without any studio stuff, without any just like because he knew that we were a vocal group that we had like three part harmony, and at that time we had four part harmony. I was the only one that didn't sing. Everybody else sang. John Rich sang. Michael sang. Dean Richie. Everybody. Um, so it was like almost like four part harmony, similar to the what the Eagles would have done. Um, so we went into his office, and I remember at the time, I didn't know what I was going to play, so I just got a little headed tambourine. It's a tambourine with a little drum head on it, and I put it sort of between my legs with some brushes, and and I remember Michael Britt, because I remember telling Michael Britt, what am I, I mean, you guys all are playing your guitars and stuff like that. I'm, am I going to, what do I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to play, and he, he put it to me like this. He said, what would the coolest drummer in the world do in that situation? And I thought about it, I thought, what would the coolest drummer in the world do? And I, I didn't know, of course, but I just thought, well, i got to figure this out. So I went and got a headed, I think I saw a video of somebody somewhere playing this headed tambourine or something with a brush or something like that, and it sounded really good. Kind of like a snare, but not really a snare, but it had the tambourine rings going on. So I thought, I could fit that into like a beat or something, you know. So we, I went and got it, and we rehearsed our little acoustic thing, and so for... We got our record deal and all that. So for years after that, when we would do acoustic shows, I played, I had that tambourine that I would put between my legs. Then after a while, the tambourine rings would start to cut into, after about 30 to 45 minutes, would start to cut into my leg because I'm holding the tambourine between my legs and I'm playing it like a snare drum sitting in a chair. And um, so I uh, thought, I got to do something different. So I um, took a snare drum 
And this was right about the time Amazed came out, I think. We were doing, we had to do some acoustic, and we had to do a promotional tour for the whole Lonely Grill album. And so I took a snare drum, put it on a stand, made it as tall as it could go, because we're sitting on like bar stools and stuff. And I took a a regular tambourine, just not with a head on it, just a regular tambourine, and hung it over a hook on the side, and I played with brushes, and I could every, you know, two, and on two and four, I could hit that snare, and I could tap the snare with the brush and make kind of like a hi-hat sound, like, and then I could pop the snare with like a tiny little rim shot sound, you know, like a pop, and that would be the snare sound, and then about every other time when I hit the snare, I would I would hit I would hit the tambourine that was hanging off of the side and you go ching like that so that kind of became my acoustic set for years after that for even our picking on the porch tour that we did in 2003 I think three or four three four three 2003 when uh, my front porch looking in uh, had come out and we did a whole this thing called picking on the porch we had a whole set built and I was still doing the snare and the tambourine thing and then uh, a few years later uh quite a few years later, um, Michael Britt had said, or someone said something like, I wish there, I really kind of miss that kick drum. And that's one thing I miss about doing the acoustic shows as doing the regular electric shows is I miss that kick drum, you know, and before I was just letting the bass guitar hit that downbeat. And I was just like, I wouldn't, didn't have anything to play. So I would just play it on the, the backbeat. Um, and it sounded okay for a long time, but then he thought, well, I kind of missed that. Could you have some kind of like a little thump, thumper thing or some kind of little bore or something you could hit or a cajon? And so I thought, I went and looked at acoustic uh, little cocktail kits up at uh, Forks Drum Closet here in town. I thought, maybe there's a little cocktail kit that I could do sort of part of a cocktail kit and part of a regular kit. So I found this little 16-inch kick drum, and it's just the smallest kick drum I think I've ever seen. 16-inch acoustic kick drum, and it was so small, in fact, it had to sit up on a stand so that the beater, which is normally used to hitting about maybe a foot high off the off the floor onto the middle of a 22-inch bass drum, so now this little 16-inch bass drum had to be lifted up on a stand or some kind of little apparatus. So anyway, I bought it, and I use a regular snare, regular hi-hat, one crash ride cymbal, and a floor tom, this little... 13 inch it's it's also a very small 13 inch floor tom that is really deep it's as deep as a floor tom it's probably about 20 inches deep 18 to 20 inches deep but it's 13 inches wide and our sound guy at the time uh caleb was his name he said that that was his favorite drum of all the drums that i've ever had or played he goes that's my favorite drum and i think it has to do with the depth of it again like the sonar thing 13-inch tom with a really deep, and he said it just had a low end and a, and a thud that, that just couldn't be beat. So you've got to figure out some kind of way that you're going to do an acoustic show. And in our acoustic shows, I'm sitting up front, so we, we all, all, uh, all, five, uh, all five of us, well, no, I'm sorry, all four of us sit up front, and then Robbie will sit in, and we used to have Brad with us, our steel player, who's not... He's not in the band anymore. He had gotten off the road. So now Robbie sits kind of behind us a little bit, but we, the four of us sit uh, across the front, which I think is cool for a drummer to be able to kind of sit there and play some percussion and stuff. So I have uh, made this kind of acoustic situation where it's a regular hi-hat stand, and, and I built the whole thing so that I could sit on a bar stool height because I didn't want it to be where 
all the rest of the guys are sitting on these bar stool. The a bar stool is like much taller than a regular chair, let's say, or a drum stool, for that matter. So I built a cocktail kit that basically could fit um, around a bar stool. I could sit on a regular bar stool, and I made the snare stand extra tall, and I made it to where I could still reach the, the little kick drum pedal, and the floor tom could sit up really, really high. I think I got some extra long. I don't know how I did it, but I made it extra tall to where everything could reach up to me and I wouldn't have to sit in a little tiny drum stool. Um, so I did that. And also I went to a lighter drum stick. Normally I play like five bead nylon sticks that are pretty heavy. But since I'm up front like that, I don't want to be blasting people out, you know, with these heavy sticks. I wanted it to be quieter and more more uh, subtle. So I've got these, um, I think they're, f- I can't remember if they're 5A or they're thinner, lighter more delicate sticks um, that are, I think, put out. Paul Lime used to have them. They're, signa- they're Paul Lime signature um, sticks, and I can't remember the brand, if it was uh, Regal Tip or something. But anyway, um, th- they're lighter, thinner, smaller sticks, but they do the job great. And that little crash ride symbol that I got from Zildjian is the perfect ma- uh, mix between a crash and a ride because I can sit there and t- tap it with the with that light stick and it just gives me a nice little ride sound or I can kind of hit it on the edge a little bit or hit it a little bit harder and I get a nice, I can do a cymbal swell. It's just a great combination of ride and crash. Um, and I only need the one. I just need that one cymbal. I can to do everything I need to do of all our songs and everything amazed and I'm already there and everything. I just need that one cymbal. And of course the hi-hats, I have the hi-hat cymbals and I can do the side stick on the snare. I can do the regular snare I can uh, hit that floor tom. Anytime there's a fill, I can do it with just the floor tom. So I've sort of trained myself to be able to fit in that situation and an acoustic thing when the, most of the other guys are just playing acoustic guitars. Dean's playing his piano, but they don't need a big sounding giant kit, you know, making a bunch of noise. They just need a little bit more than percussion. Like uh, they need some percussion, but also, and you know, I also have um, things in there, you know, also like my uh, shakers and things like that. I have those. Also, I think I have some uh, brushes and things like that. So it's just my basic percussion slash acoustic kit, uh, cocktail kit kind of thing. Um, And it's really great. And, uh, you know, it's more relaxed and we are more connected to the audience because we're not wearing ear monitors. There's no click track. There's no, none of that. It's just, you count the songs off, you play. It's very natural. It's very fun. And we can hear the audience talking to us. It's a more intimate kind of crowd. And it's really, honestly, one of my favorite ways to play because I just think we sound so good as a band, as a group, just natural like that. We're just playing just like we're like a garage band or something. You know, we're just like, you. I'll count it off and then everybody comes in and it's really fun, really fun way to play. And the audiences really like it because I think we sound great that way. Sort of stripped down, unplugged, as it were. And that kind of thing. Um, you know, you can also get a cajon. You know what a cajon is, right? It's a cajon is the box. It's a wooden box that you sit on, usually. You sit on it, and you reach down uh, beneath you, and you, you tap on different parts of this box. And they have different thicknesses that make different sounds. So, like, let's say, like, the right side, that would be, like, your, your downbeat, which is like a boom. It's a thinner piece of wood on there. And then as you hit the front of it or the side, it may have a pop sound. It's just a little bit thicker piece of wood. Or maybe it's 
just a you know different kind of wood or something and it just has a different sound to it and it also has a little snare in there in the wood within the wood that you can t- turn on and off and it, it, so if you don't know what a cajon is and by the way it's spelled with a j in there it looks like cajun it looks like like if you're reading it it looks like it's spelled it's spelled cajun but it's pronounced cajon and uh they they do get a little pricey sometimes for a I mean, I'm talking about a wooden box, but I think that they're made sort of like an acoustic guitar. Like acoustic guitars are thousands of dollars. They can be thousands of dollars, hundreds of that, hundreds to thousands of dollars. So this little wooden box is something like mixed between like a drum and an acoustic guitar. Uh, so they can be uh, pricey, you know, when you're considering it's just a box. But this, they've really come a long way, and they've got different things now. They've got different cajon snares that you can get that are uh, sort of an, an add-on to that that sound like a little kind of a snare type thing. Um, there's so many different ways you can do it, but whichever way you go, you should need to practice it, and you need to figure out how the song, how it could serve the song best and put out the best time and the best rhythm that you possibly can with whatever you have, even if it's a set of shakers or if it's a whole percussion set up in front of you or whatever it's going to be or a cajon, or they make these little cajon kits that like have a kick drum pedal that actually uses the cajon as a bass drum. It goes around behind you. The little cable goes around behind you, so you can kick it in front of you, and it and it kicks behind you, and it kicks the wooden box that you're sitting on, like a boom. And they have pickups inside, and you can put a microphone up to it or whatever you want. And I've heard some cajons on stage with a band sound amazing. I mean, like... I would be hard-pressed to think that they weren't drums, you know, if I wasn't looking. Um, so it just depends on how you play it. And if, you, if you're if you able to drive the band with that, with your time, and your the band can hear it okay and follow you and all that. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, you know, pick, pick, your, pick your poison, as it were. <laughs> Figure out, um, you know, what you like best and what you play, but what you can afford as far as an acoustic kit. But back to the original, um, stage kit. Um, don't chance on getting a really good quality kit. If you're going to do this for a living and if you're going on auditions, if you're going out, if you're putting yourself out there on auditions, you're, you're serious about it. You're, you're getting serious about it. You're not just going on auditions to say, well, see if how this thing works out. Maybe I'll be a drummer. Maybe not. No, you've already decided that you're going to be a drummer and you're ready to go out there and show the world what you can play and how good you are. You've already practiced. You're already a good drummer. You know that. And they need to know that. And, but not only just that you're a good drummer, but that you have a good kit as well and a good brand. And they're going to look at that Yamaha, uh, you know, stage custom, kit and they're going to go oh yeah and those zildjian symbols or peisty symbols or sabian symbols or whatever the nice clean new looking symbols and they're going to be impressed by your equipment and you have to be able to play hard and tough and have some talent to back it up so it's the whole package the whole package of a great kit a great brand of kit a great uh the way you've got them set up uh, nice and clean and um, not making any weird noises. And, of course, the timbali that's not, like, waggling from side to side, for God's sake. Um, anyway, um, yeah, don't don't make the mistakes I've made because I have learned the hard way how to pass an audition and how not to pass an audition. And I think uh, when I started out years ago, my goal was to be 
the kind of drummer that people you didn't have to audition for that that you didn't have to audition for the band they just wanted you and and it it took some years it took a decade or more than a decade but then i sort of almost became that guy that people would say hey that's the guy you need you need keith rainwater to play drums because he's solid and he 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 can do it you know we we've seen him before we've seen him in canyon or whatever you know i sort of had to go out and prove myself for a lot of years and it wasn't easy but um i sort of became that guy you know and happy to be that guy right now that plays with Lone Star and that drives that band and I hope that you can take this advice and uh, learn from it and be a great drummer practice get a great kit get out there and impress them and hopefully we'll see you on stage uh, the next big giant concert right I mean that's what you're supposed to think right that's what you're supposed to do you're supposed to think big and you be big and that's that's what it's all about So have a great week and an even better January and a whole great 2023. And I'll see you on the next one. This has been Keith Rainwater with Designated Drummer. Bye.